1: Hi, this is Alan Clark at the Hollies, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Okay, so I've been looking forward to this one. This episode is the last episode of season three where we focus on California rock. And season four is going to open it up to all the great classic rock of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, both here and abroad. But to close things out on a fun and very appropriate note, in this episode, I'll be speaking with Emmeline Summerton writer and creator of the Instagram account Lost Canyons LA, and the account celebrates the history, the music, the art, and the fashion of LA's iconic canyon communities. She also writes for the Topanga New Times, which is a local publication that circulates to all residents of the canyons here in LA. So she and I are going to talk about some of our favorite Laurel Canyon songs from the 60s and 70s, as well as their backstories. She's got some classic picks, and I'd like to think I've got some gems too. So let's get into it.
0: day love my hideaway
1: Emeline, thank you for coming on My Rock Moment. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. I'm excited too. Well, we connected through your stellar Instagram account, Lost Canyons LA, and that provides an inside look at the history of the canyons. And for anybody that's listening that is not from LA, that means Laurel Canyon. That means Topanga Canyon, Beechwood Canyon, Benedict Canyon. And there's a definite focus on the music of Laurel Canyon in your account
2: there definitely is
1: yeah I mean I feel like you can't
2: talk about the LA Canyons without Laurel Canyon kind of rising to you know the top <laughs> of the pile it's so iconic and and that time period of the late 60s early 70s just left such an indelible mark on the music industry and culture in general that that yeah naturally Laurel Canyon takes takes the front um stage in in my account but I but I love to include the other canyons and the slightly different vibe that each canyon has and um, and the people who have been flocking to the canyons for like over 100 years because there's something about them that just feels like a, like a really inspiring place to live if you're a creative person, if you're looking for an alternative way of living or seeking sort of some new way of thinking. Yeah, so I love to tell stories about lesser known people who, you know, found their way to the canyon to kind of find home. So, So I always include those stories, too.
1: Yeah, no, I love that. It gives you the holistic view and you've got a lot of great people following you that have a real vested interest in Los Angeles.
2: Yeah, which is which is great because as an outsider, you know, I feel like I, I'm, you know, I grew up in Australia. I'm looking at the canyon through these sort of new eyes. I I moved to the canyons when I came to L.A. and and just saw this all, you know, unfolding in front of me. And um, and just I'm so flattered that people who live in L.A. who know this place, who are storytellers themselves. Um, are enjoying my content it's yeah it's wonderful
1: yeah well there's been a light that's recently shown on the canyons I think too a resurgence in uh, you know classic rock and the music that came out of there and that really leads us to our discussion today so we came together to discuss and play some of our favorite Laurel Canyon tracks talk about the backstories talk about why we chose them Mm -hmm. and this was fun for me because it was an excuse to again geek out (laughs) on the inspiration (laughs) behind the songs and what motivated these bands or the particular artists to put pen to paper you know so you and I have several songs some are well known Um, some might be more obscure if those that are listening are only familiar with the hits but let's start with some of our picks. Yes. Now, the first one I chose was Southern Cross by Crosby, Stills and & Nash. And this is off their Daylight Again album, uh, 1982. And this is interesting because this was around the time that Crosby's drug use had really reached you know, its pinnacle. Mm-hmm. So he was hardly involved in this album. And they had a lot of other people come on um, to essentially help out and fill Crosby's shoes. He did come in towards the end. He contributed a couple tracks. But this is really a Nash and Stills album. Now... The reason I chose it is because, first of all, the song transports you and we're going to play it in a second. So everybody's going to, you know, hear what I'm talking about or be reminded of what I'm talking about, because it's probably one of the lesser known tracks of their popular tracks. But the Curtis Brothers brought this song to Stills and it was called Seven League Boots, but it was kind of all over the place. So Stills reworked it. And he basically crafted these lyrics around his personal experience because at the time he was going through a divorce. He was divorcing uh, Veronique Sanson and he was despondent. So he essentially got on a boat and got out of town. And he had said that, you know, it was about using the power of the universe to heal your wounds. And, you know, the song I think was really a cathartic um, experience for him. Mm,
2: It's interesting. There's a, there's a theme with Crosby, Stills and
1: Nash with
2: them taking to the high seas to work out your (laughs) emotional problems of David Crosby famously buying a boat very early on in the piece and spending a lot of time out on the water when life was getting difficult so
1: yeah exactly and look what good that did him I mean you know waiting on the other side of that was Crosby, Stills and Nash and Joni Mitchell and all those great things you know. What what um, is interesting to me about this song is I
2: actually only recently discovered it. Mm. Um, for for whatever reason, it just never got on my radar, and I don't know if it what maybe wasn't a you know as successful a song in Australia that it was here. But it surprises me because um, Australia can see the Southern Cross constellation, like we're one of the countries that sees it. So I I would have thought this would have been really sort of embraced in that way um to the southern crosses on the Australian flag like it's a big yes, deal exactly um, so yeah I was really surprised I was like how how is it that I have missed this song in the you know in the scheme of
0: everything
1: yeah and i think a lot of people have missed it a lot of people Mm -hmm. i've talked about it with or mentioned it to they don't seem to be familiar with the track and Mm -hmm. when i was reading what the southern cross was um it did surprise me because yeah i thought well maybe Emmeline knows it but it's in reference to the crux constellation Mm -hmm. and it can only be seen from the southern hemisphere
3: hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds
1: So it had said that the four brightest stars within the constellation they form this kind of like cross pattern, and those at sea, you know, relied on the Southern Cross to kind of help them navigate boats and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But then I read that it appears on the national flags of New Zealand and Australia. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a big deal. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> but I heard it early on as a kid, mm-hmm. and some of the lyrics, um, they stuck out to me, and I think you know anybody who's had. Heartbreak um, understands that feeling of wanting to run Mm -hmm. (laughs) and just get away from your environment and anything that would remind you of the heartbreak or of that person. And that's exactly what Stephen Stills did. But in one of the verses, he says, So I'm sailing for tomorrow. My dreams are a dying, and my love is an anchor tied to you, tied with a silver chain. I have my ship, and all her flags are a flying. She is all that I have left, and music. Is her name? Oh wow! Yeah. Whenever I hear that verse, specifically that last line, I don't know why, but I tear up. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Well, it's it's really it's really moving because I think everybody can sort of relate to that, even if you don't have the good fortune of having music be such a a big part of your life, which I think must be such a comfort to to have to be able to express your feelings through music. But I think we can all
1: relate to, you
2: know, to how that would feel.
1: Most definitely. Most definitely. Especially us who, you know, really made music um, such a big part of our lives. It is um, the great therapist, so to speak. (laughs) Oh, sure. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, here's that song.
4: On a boat on the southern islands Sailing a reach before a following sea She was making for the trades on the outside And the downhill run to Papa Off the wind on this heading line, the Marquesas Got 80 feet of a waterline, nicely making way. In the noisy bar and Avalon, I tried to call you. But on a midnight watch, I realized, why twice you...
2: Okay, so now for my first song, I thought, Scott, let's start with somebody who's so incredibly associated with the Canyon and Laurel Canyon and the song that sort of most encapsulates the feel of Laurel Canyon um, to this artist who's, of course, Joni Mitchell and the song is Ladies of the Canyon. Um, and what I love about Ladies of the Canyon is that she really evokes a feeling in the canyon but through the stories of women that live there and they're not they're not famous women and they're not um, women who necessarily were in the you know recording industry or part of that you know artistic scene but they were women that um had you know found their way to the canyon because, like I said earlier, you know they're seeking um creativity and inspiration and and wanting to you know have something um for themselves in their you know in their life and um you know, and sort of found it in the canyon and and Joni names these women um in the song, and all three are women that she knew in the canyon mm-hmm. and so it's it's a great sort of storytelling song about that time period and the three women themselves are really interesting the the first one that she talks about about Trina and her wampum beads and drawing in a book and um, Trina Robbins was the inspiration for that she had um, been in the New York Greenwich Village scene and she sold vintage clothing and she drew Um, But she came out to Laurel Canyon, selling her clothes, making sort of, you know, vintage style pieces um, and drawing. And so she was amongst the milieu of of the scene. I think she knew Crosby from New York and through Crosby she had met Joni. But what was fascinating about Trina, looking back on it now, is that she ended up becoming this incredibly well-known comic book writer and drawer. And she, really? yeah, by the time Ladies of the Canyon came out, she'd moved to San Francisco and she was drawing um, comics for this, like, first women's liberation kind of newspaper called It Ain't Me, Babe. Oh, and, my gosh. Um, yeah, so she was sort of at this cutting edge of of comics being sort of a counterculture interesting way to look at you know society and and people and um and that just sparked this whole career. She has worked in the comic book industry her whole life is a regular at Comic Con um, because people, particularly women, are such huge fans of her sort of feminist comic book um work, which I just think is just such a great story. And then um, the next one is Annie Burden and she's slightly different in that what Joni saw in her was this sort of motherly sort of Kenyan woman in the song that she talks about, you know, Annie will always have a place, set an extra place at the table for you, or she'll be making brownies. And um, the woman that that is about Annie Burden, she was the wife of Um, Gary Burden.
1: Oh, Gary Burden. Oh,
2: Gary Burden. Yeah, yeah, prolific album cover designer. Worked with Henry Diltz, the photographer, a lot on making the you know, sort of truly iconic albums we all recognize. But when Joni was writing the song in the late 60s, Annie was only 20 years old, but she was married, she had a child, and she was this sort of um, homemaker. And she had like maternal and sort of caring vibes. And I think a lot of the wayward musicians in the canyon found being around Annie just this wonderful sort of grounding and and sort of settling experience. And she she said in interviews that she didn't really think of herself as having any part of that whole scene that was happening. Until Joni sung about her, and then she realized that she actually was a part of it, that she that you know what she was doing was um, was worth talking about in the context of. Laurel Canyon and I just love that I just think that's so wonderful
1: and you can see pictures of her I think at Mama Cass's house um that Mm -hmm. famous barbecue that Henry Diltz documented where Crosby brought Joni, you know his protege at the time nobody really knew her but there are pictures there are uh, all of them together
2: of them all sitting together and Annie's there and her little toddler is like yes rolling around on the grass and Mm -hmm. yeah I mean she was right there at the epicenter of it but just somebody we don't get to hear about because her contribution was this sort of quiet behind the scenes so I love that Joni called that out and then the last woman she um, sings about her as being Estrella the circus girl and she this was Estrella Borosini and she was a circus girl. She grew up in the circus. Her father was a very famous Czech trapeze artist. But she was a singer-songwriter and was in um, Coconut Grove in Florida performing in the same little folk venue that that Joni performed in where David Crosby first saw her perform. Estrella says she was the one that said to Crosby, you have to come and listen to this woman Joni play. Wow. Um, But whether or not, either way, who cares? She was there. (laughs) She was there. And like um, Joni, she travelled to Laurel Canyon seeking to sort of have her own music career, which didn't pan out the same way that Joni's did. She didn't become sort of an iconic folk singer from the canyon. Um, But she, again, was just one of those really interesting characters who, you know, led this unconventional life and found her way to the canyon as a place that felt like, you know, home, somewhere where she could, you know, sort of be a part of of what was happening. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so I just just think it's such a great snapshot of what was happening in the canyon in the late 60s. The song came out in 1970 on Joni's Ladies of the Canyon album, but it sort of was capturing Joni's first couple of years in the canyon and what it felt like to her to be a part of that community so I just think it's it's such a lovely little record of time
1: well and the way she memorialized California and specifically Laurel Canyon I mean you know this girl from Canada um, Mm -hmm. really became synonymous with Laurel Canyon
2: yeah, and I think I think that's some, that's there's something to say as a you know person who's sort of come from another place. I think there is something to um, arriving in a place like Laurel Canyon that just feels so different from where mm-hmm. you're from. That um, that's got such an energy that you know, yeah, you just can't help but but feel it. Yeah, I mean, California is just another fantastic song which she actually wrote while she was in Greece. Yeah, um and in, then in Paris, and she was yearning for that special something that that's there, and mm-hmm. um, that's that's another fantastic journey song.
1: She made her home here, and I, you know, to this day, she still has that home in Laurel Canyon. She doesn't know, live in this but isn't that amazing? In fact, there's a great quote Joni wrote. When I first came to LA in 1968, my friend, photographer Joel Bernstein, found an old book in a flea market that said, ask anyone in America where the craziest people live and they'll tell you California. Ask anyone in California where the craziest people live and they'll say Los Angeles. Ask anyone in Los Angeles where the craziest people live and they'll tell you Hollywood. Ask anyone in Hollywood where the craziest people live and they'll say Laurel Canyon. Ask anyone in Laurel Canyon where the craziest people live, and they'll say, Lookout Mountain. So I bought a house on Lookout Mountain.
2: Isn't that just so fantastic?
1: It's I love
2: so it. Good.
1: Hey, guys, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Okay, guys, let's get back to the interview. Well, keeping with the theme of uh, Crosby on my end, I wanted to talk about his song, eight minutes of goodness (laughs) called cowboy movie on, if I could only remember my name, his um, solo album from 1971. Now the song itself, it's a long one. Okay. But it is an epic saga. And essentially it's a movie about the temporary breakup of CSNY in 1970. Now, if anybody follows that band, they know that, you know, that was a very tempestuous band and they were constantly breaking up. But in this story. Is cowboy movie. There's a character named Eli and there's a character named Duke that battle for the affections of this young Indian girl named Raven. Now, all the characters in the movie, so to speak, are based on real people. Eli is Stephen Stills, Duke is Graham Nash, and Raven is Rita Coolidge. Now, <laughs> if anybody's familiar with the drama of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, this actually uh, took a prominent place in their history. Um, Rita Coolidge had actually sang backup vocals for Stephen Stills' single Love the One You're With from 1970. And while she was in the studio, Graham Nash was also there. And they would talk between breaks and things like that. And apparently they really hit it off. Well, Graham Nash had invited her the next day to a Crosby, Stills, and Nash show. And he said, call the house, we'll make arrangements. Well, he was living with Stephen Stills at the time. So when she called, Stephen Stills picked up the phone and said, oh, yeah, you know what? There's been a change of plans. Um, I'm going to be the one taking you to the concert. Then he tells Graham Nash, oh, Rita just called. She's canceling on you. (laughs) There's some holes to this story, but apparently (laughs) Stephen Stills had some sort of master plan in mind. So he took her to the concert, and they actually ended up up dating. Took her to the concert. Graham Nash wouldn't even talk to her. Hmm. Well... They dated for some time, and I think Rita was realizing this was not a love match. This was not something made in heaven, and she actually still did have feelings for Graham Nash. She ends up talking to Graham Nash and finding out, you know, basically what Stephen Stills had orchestrated. And she said, okay, I am done with him, but, you know, Graham Nash, I would really like to make something happen with you. And um, obviously that was... <laughs> that created a very sticky situation. And he said, okay, well, we have to talk to Steven Stills about this. And apparently they drove up to Stephen Stills' house together, had alerted him to this fact that they needed to talk about something. He was waiting outside and he said, Stephen, we've got to talk to you about this. And a fight ensued. But at that point, it caused a major, major rift in the band. And Graham Nash and Rita Coolidge dated for over a year. but the tensions, you know, um, were there. And David Crosby blamed her for not only that temporary breakup, but the eventual breakup of the band. And she, you know, and and I believe Rita here, she says, look, there were tensions well before I came into the mix. (laughs) Absolutely. I may have been, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back, but by no means am I the, you know, the sole reason that this this group eventually disbanded but crosby apparently harbored quite a bit of resentment towards her and he wrote this you know epic song this 8 minute long movie and one of the verses says we were walking back through the darkness i heard the duke the duke was Graham nash i heard the duke he's our dynamiter say he said what's your name sweet little indian girl she said, Raven, and she looked away. Right then, I didn't trust her. No, and I said so. <laughs> so she was really poor thing. <laughs> poor thing.
2: I know. Imagine you just hearing that someone's written this song about you, and you just be like, oh yikes
1: yikes exactly (laughs) exactly Exactly. and she's like I had no idea that I was you know the reason that this band broke up when they were already dealing with drug abuse Stephen Stills was deep into it so was David Crosby yeah not to mention the volatile pairing between um, Young and Stills that was a constant from Buffalo Springfield on through right so it
2: it also certainly wasn't the first time that two members of the band had been with the same woman I mean Crosby with Joni and then you know and then Nash partnered with Joni and some that somehow seemed to have gone quite smoothly that one um but you know there's a there's only so many people in the pool of the stadium, <laughs> in our opinion of I mean,
1: it's bound to happen <laughs> exactly exactly so this was really an epic drama but it it is such a good jam mm. i mean the lyrics tell a great story but you know crosby was backed up by the grateful dead jerry garcia and neil young play lead guitar so they're playing off each other and just you know the craftsmanship in general it makes it such a fun listen, but then you know the backstory behind it and the drama mm-hmm. that ensued <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: It makes it all that more interesting the other The other little note about this story that I love is that um, when Graham Nash and Rita Coolidge got together, she had a place in Beechwood Canyon, and he mm-hmm. moved in to her place in beechwood and I just thought how interesting that you know when he first came to l a he met Joni and he moved into her house in Laurel Canyon and then just a couple of years <laughs> later he's moving into Rita's house in Beechwood Canyon. I don't want to say that he's just looking for somewhere, somewhere great <laughs> to live but you know just
1: an, inter- just an interesting little in twist. his defense though. <laughs> the first time he was going to move in with Crosby and I can't imagine living with David no, Crosby. absolutely not. I think if he- you you 100% are better
2: off living with an incredibly talented and beautiful woman in her canyon house.
1: <laughs> Especially if he was living at the time with Stephen Stills. Exactly. That would have been awkward. <laughs> he had to get out. <laughs> he had
2: to get out. Yeah, there was, there was no two ways about it.
1: <laughs> oh, so I'm going to play the song for everybody now or a little bit of it, but I would encourage everybody to take those full eight minutes and listen straight through when they can.
2: So my next song is also has ties to um, Stephen Steele's house in Laurel, Canyon, which we were just talking about. Um, and this one is not is not a band you would typically say is a Kenyan band, but they certainly spent their time there, and it's the Rolling Stones and um, Gimme Shelter, which is one of my favourite stone songs. Me too. Um, but at the time they... Recorded it. They were staying in LA for sort of an extended period of time. They were finishing up the recording on "Let It Bleed," which they had started in London, but were, you know, recording the final songs and doing the final mixes um, at Sunset Sound here in Los Angeles. And they rented the house from Stephen Stills for them to stay in. It actually it was Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and Mick Taylor. Mm-hmm. Um, who rented that house? Charlie Watts and his wife had a um, rented house in the Hollywood Hills. So did Bill Wyman. Um, but the other three were at the at Stephen Stills' house um, with their tour manager, Sam Cutler. Um, and the great thing about this house, as well as it's it's got such a Laurel Canyon music legacy, in that it was actually Peter Talk's house. Um, originally and he and Stephen Stills were very close friends back from their New York Greenwich Village folk days right. um, and when Peter had the house it was notorious as a as a party house and I had this great quote from Mickey Dolans who in his memoir described peter's house is a macrobiotic halfway house for wayward hippies and naked nubile nymphs (laughs) Well,
1: being a nudist himself yeah (laughs) there were a lot of there were
2: a lot of stories about skinny dipping and all kinds at peter talks house and steven stills as well you know um lots of parties happened there but um the interesting thing about the Stones' stay there that um, I read in their tour manager Sam Cutler's book was that it was actually quite, quite a quiet time for the guys. They didn't want to do a lot of partying. They It was an opportunity for them to work on the music, rehearse, um, finish the songs that they needed um, to finish, um, in his book, he said, um, sometimes it felt like living with three English gentlemen in a sedate country hotel. Mm-hmm. Most of the time the house was very quiet and that was the way everyone liked it. It was sort of a retreat for Keith and Mick to write and rehearse. Um, but then he does preface it by saying, although, of course, there were a number of very beautiful women who also <laughs>
0: stayed,
2: <laughs> just happened to also be staying at
0: the yeah, Just by, <laughs> by chance. Just by chance.
2: So I, what I love about "Gimme Shelter" at this time when they're working on um, the uh, on the album and recording "Gimme Shelter" in in Sunset Sound is um, it's just such a powerful song of of that kind of time and place, that sort of late '60s sort of political and civil unrest, the Vietnam War, the Mm -hmm. um, you know all the changes that are happening in America, young people um, protesting and Um, And although Keith says he actually got the inspiration for it from actually just seeing people run from a thunderous rain downpour in London, it's as they worked on it as a band, it kind of took on these new meanings um, and new lyrics were added. And um, and what I think has then really... Also, another layer of the song is that it was at this same time period after they finished recording the album and they went out on their '69 U.S. tour. That sort of culminated at Altamont, right? A free concert at Altamont that had been arranged by the Grateful Dead and and other people. And the Stones were the headliner at that show. And of course, most people, if you don't know, you know that ended up being a completely chaotic and out of control the murder
1: of Meredith Hunter yeah. um,
2: yes and, and and Meredith Hunter a concert goer there was murdered by the hell's angels who had been hired to do um, security at the concert and it it sort of ends up being the complete flip side of Woodstock the peace and love festival yeah. altamont you know has sort of become this kind of incredibly dark footnote to the end of that of 1969 and Um, the documentary about Altamont, which the Males Brothers made, they actually called it Give Me Shelter. Right. Um, And the song is just sort of incredibly linked to, you know, to that um, that period. And and I think, you know, one of the things about this time and the Canyons in general, there's always the dark side that runs underneath the stories, particularly 1969 where we had the Manson murders Mm -hmm. and Altamont um, that really rocked the canyon scene and um and so Give Me Shelter sort of really encapsulates that feeling like I feel like most of the stories that I write there's just this thread of darkness that yeah you know that runs through it and the other thing I love about Give Me Shelter is the backing vocals in that Mm -hmm. song are unbelievable they're just so incredible and um The woman that does the backing vocals on the song is Mary Clayton. And um, she tells the story that she was fast asleep in bed one night um, and she gets a call from the Stones producer saying, we've just realized we need backing vocals on this song. Will you come down to the studio now and record the backing vocals for us? And so Mary gets up out of her deep sleep. She's four months pregnant at the time. Comes down to the studio, records those backing tracks in less than an hour. By one o'clock, she's on her way back home and back to bed. And yet, yeah, they're just some of the most iconic backing vocals. And and I read that actually, she's the woman with the most like vocal time on any Rolling Stones song. It is her and, and Give Me Shelter. Mm-hmm. And if anyone has not watched the document documentary Twenty Feet from Stardom, which is mm-hmm. about backing vocalist you must watch it because yeah. it's just an incredible documentary incredible insight into the role backing vocalists play in all of these iconic songs that that we love
1: so fantastic song a, a couple of things about that i mean yes yeah. when you go see the stones play and i've heard them play so many times live um you always wonder who's going to be able to fill those yeah. shoes because yeah. it is yeah. such a big part of that song and you're right it is a very dark song and she's yeah. in the background screaming rape, murder. rape and murder i mean it's just a shot away yeah it's a very powerful powerful song um and it does like you said encapsulate the end of 1969 because within a four-month period we went through the from the highest of highs in terms of the whole hippie peace and love ethos to um the remnants of what was left you had Woodstock but just before that you know um were the Manson murders like a week before 10 days before nobody knew it was Manson And then Altamont happens in December. Yeah. So it was just like, bam, bam. And that was the dark note that things were ended on. And one thing I did read, and I actually did mention it in a previous episode, is Keith, when he started uh, ideating so to speak, uh, Gimme Shelter, it was really inspired by what was going on with his relationship with Anita Pallenberg. She had been re- um, with Mick Jagger. They were doing that movie performance well, my, and well. he was absolutely livid by it mm. because she got very, very close with Mick yeah. during that time, if you know what I mean. yeah. And he was going out of his mind. And so the story goes, he wrote the song while she was filming a sexual scene with mick for the movie right he was going out of his mind and he wrote the storm is threatening my very life today Mm -hmm. you know and then it eventually evolved the song evolved um, with the help of mick and others to become more about you know the state of the world yeah um and everything that was happening and just the unrest um the political tension the war all of that so you know yeah. And that is what I've read in the past, which just adds another layer to yeah, it. Yeah, it Makes does. I, I read
2: that as well. Yeah, it does add another layer. There's a lot, it's like there's a lot happening
1: in the shelter. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot happening. <laughs> well, it's one of the best songs in in, in my humble opinion yeah. that the stones have ever done.
2: I agree. I agree. I just think I never get tired of listening to it.
1: Mm-hmm. And, yeah, mm-hmm. and it's
2: wonderful to see them live. And I love um, when they do that, "Give Me Shelter" live, their back their backing singer comes out to the front, and she and mixing it together, and it's such it's such a great moment. Whenever
1: mm-hmm. and the beginning is just the best; it oh. gives you chills.
2: And and it doesn't matter that it's more than fifty years old; it's just
1: Yep, really stands great. the test of time. Sure does. Here it is. keeping with the canyons uh my next song is 1230, young girls are coming to the canyon by the mamas and papas which was off their 1968 album the mamas and the papas now this song is great it's melancholy Mm -hmm. there's something about it that's somewhat sad but at the same time upbeat um and it is indeed you know a love letter to the canyons Mm -hmm. and it's interesting because this was part of their um, Greatest hits compilation, which was entitled Farewell to the First Golden Era. And the only reason their greatest hits ca- compilation came out, which was, I believe, 67, late or early 68, was because the band was fighting. Mm-hmm. And Lou wanted to keep them in the forefront in front of their audience. We said, let's put out. You know a greatest hits album, and let's put a new track on there to entice people to buy it. Let's also put it out as a, sing- as a single, mm-hmm. and that was 1230.
2: Yeah, which is something that uh, people have done ever since then. The, the oh, <laughs> here's the greatest hits, but there's like one new song,
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. Was very savvy, very savvy for a band that had only been around a couple of years. Exactly. At that um but it did end up coming out again on their fourth album um which they ended up finishing which was just entitled The Mamas and the Papas.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So th- the song was written in 1965 but they held on to it and the group their vocals in this to me it's one of their best mm-hmm. performances. Mm-hmm. When they go into a chorus and they're all together, I mean my gosh, you know why they are the superstars that they are at that time. Yeah. Um, but John Phillips had written this song, like I said, in 1965, after moving here from NYC. So he's speaking about the comparison between the friendliness of LA and and essentially the rudeness he encountered in NYC at times. Mm. So they say, I don't know if he's also airing his dirty laundry here. And speaking (laughs) of the bevy of women he enjoyed in the canyon, You know, I can't remember if I was watching some sort of documentary and Michelle Phillips was talking about it and, you know... They're singing, young girls are coming to the canyon. And she says something like, and John, you've slept with everyone. (laughs) (laughs) I think
2: I've read a couple of little snarky comments from Michelle on this song,
0: for sure. Oh,
1: yeah. I mean, you know, he says, young girls are coming to the canyon. And in the mornings, I can see them walking. Mm. I can no longer keep my blinds drawn. Mm. And I can't keep myself from talking. Yeah. It's almost as if he's judging this behavior Mm. when he himself (laughs) was, you know, engaging in it uh, Mm. on a regular basis.
2: Well, I didn't know until you just said it that it was written as early as 1965, which I think is so interesting because, I mean, it, it sounds more like it should be written in 67, where when like Laurel Canyon sort of really hits its kind of moment of being the place to be and girls are are flocking there but 1965 it sort of tells me something a little a little different um
1: 1965, there were already a lot of people, I think, coming up there. I mean, I think Chris Hammond of the birds mm -hmm, was there. Now, Zappa and them, I think they came 1966. But I think it had started to become, if Mm -hmm. only underground, a a place to be, a place of refuge.
2: I feel like John's, he's talking about the first young girls that are coming to the Kenyan who are maybe local girls who knew a little bit more that something was happening there before the rest of the world
1: cottoned on to it. So Most definitely. Yeah. In fact, Pamela DeBar even says in her book, you know, I'm with the band. She had an insatiable crush on Chris Hellman. Oh, absolutely. She used to drive up there and just sit out <laughs> sit front when you could do that back in the day.
2: <laughs> and I just want to go on record to say if I was there, I would 100% have done that. Too. So would I. <laughs>
1: Just a, i just would have just made my rounds that he drove up <laughs> <laughs> all right he's not here on to the next <laughs> but you know what the mamas and the papas and maybe it's more because of mama Cass. Mm. they are synonymous with laurel canyon Yes, they are. And she was so instrumental in, along with Joni in a different way, in creating that communal vibe. I mean, she yeah. embodied it. She did. You know, the, everybody up there was working together. They were hanging out together. They were doing drugs together. They were sleeping together. They were influencing each other, yeah. you know, as people and in their art. And Mama Cass was such a vital part of that. Yeah. So Mamas and the Papas on the whole, um, you cannot talk about Laurel Canyon without talking about them. Here's the song.
4: I used to live in New York City, everything there was dark. To the clock that always said 12.
2: Okay, so my next song is another iconic Laurel Canyon band who we couldn't not include, and that is the Doors. But I've picked People Are Strange as my um, choice mm. from the Doors for a few reasons. One, because like a lot of people, I my the sort of the height of my teen angst period, I discovered the Doors,
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, and I think you know, if you're a teenager who's sort of tra- feeling like oh i I don't belong here, and there must be more and uh, and whatever the doors really speak, the doors really speak to you, I think people are strange in particular, um just sort of encapsulates that feeling of being a little bit alienated, being a little bit unsure of who you are. Why you're surrounded by the people you are? Why you're in the place that you're in? Like, what, you know, what is this? And that certainly, the song arrived at that point in my life where I was sort of, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a sort of introspective, sullen teen, and um, and listening to a lot of the Doors. Um, but the other reason I picked this song is because I got to live out my teenage girl fantasy by sort of seeing The Doors live in that I recently saw Robbie Krieger and his band play at the Whiskey Agogo. Go And although it obviously was not The Doors and it was just Robbie <laughs> and his son and, you know, and a great backing band, I still got that feeling of you know, somebody pinched me. I am at the whiskey, and I am watching a member of the doors, yeah. <laughs> play the music that he played that he helped write. um it was, yeah, it was a fantastical full circle moment for me. And what was even better was. Robbie told this great story about people estranged from the stage and as somebody who collects canyon stories I was just like <laughs> oh my goodness can't get any better can not get any better now I'm getting to hear Robbie tell a canyon story so um so I obviously had to include this one so how Robbie told this story about the writing of people are Strange is that at the time he and John Densmore were sharing a house in Laurel Canyon and Jim was living in the canyon as well and he had just had a fight with his girlfriend Pamela, Pamela Corson. I'm assuming, although he didn't say it, that they are living in the house um, that is immortalised in the song Love Street because they've had this fight and Jim makes his way up the canyon to... Robbie and John and he's in a real state um he's depressed and and angry and upset um and and Robbie said at first he thought that Jim was sort of putting on a bit of an act there there's a bunch of people at the house there's a lot of pretty girls at the house and he's like he's just you know he's just making a big deal out of this to just seem like the tortured kind of you know twisted artist type but when he hadn't cheered up all through the night and it was beginning to be dawn he was like we've got to something's got to give we got to get this guy out of this mood so he suggested that they walk up the canyon to a, a beautiful spot overlooking the city and they watch the sunrise and they see the sun come up hoping that this will snap Jim out of out of his funk um, and he said, you know, the walk did seem to help, and Jim started to perk up. Um, when they got back to the house, he said to them that he's just had this realization that when you when you feel strange, when you know when you're strange, then people seem strange to you. And that, that's right. you know, and that's what so it's really about. It's like what's happening. This is how I interpret it. It's like when you're feeling like you aren't quite connecting with yourself or you feel a bit alienated or a bit sort of on the outs then other people feel like the strange ones Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so he had that line and of course he then immediately was like that's a song and started writing the rest of the lyrics and then here we have people a strange it's a fantastic (laughs) song which obviously has a fantastic canyon connection that not only are they living there but the song was inspired by actually just being out in the canyon overlooking the city seeing the dawn just that you know for anyone who's who's been in the canyon and seen that kind of view it's incredibly inspiring
1: oh yeah and Uh, arguably (laughs) <laughs> it's probably one of Jim's easier songs to interpret. <laughs>
2: yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, right. the, it's one of
1: the more, more
2: straightforward, kind of, you know, just great 60s pop rock songs that mm-hmm. the drawers were really great at.
0: Mm-hmm. But they were also
2: really great at the um, much more complex, hard to decipher.
1: Poetic ramblings of Jim ramblings Morrison. Of Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic song. Here it is.
4: People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down. When you're strange. When you're unwanted, streets are uneven. When you're down.
1: All right, so I am uh, keeping with the classic bands here of uh, Laurel Canyon. My next song is "So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star," and that was by the Birds, "Younger Than Yesterday," 1967. Mm. So this is interesting because let's talk about what's happening in 1967. Okay, so Laurel Canyon is in full throttle. Yes. It's been three years since the Beatles had come to the U.S. Everything has changed. Everything. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry has picked up a guitar and started a band. Not to mention you have the influx of all the British invasion bands. Mm. So teens at this point are just being inundated with this music, right? Mm. and supposedly it it, people do say that it was inspired by the monkeys being a manufactured band and this was Mm. a dig at the monkeys but Roger McGuinn says that was not that was not it at all he basically said that he and Chris were looking at the current state of pop and there was a bit of cynicism you know he was going through some of the old like teen magazines and they're going through and they're just like look at this Look at this, you know, this kid and this kid and this kid, you know, anybody can be a pop star. So they wrote this, you know, kind of tongue in cheek song. So you want to be a rock and roll star and the screams in the actual song were recorded in an August 15th, 1965 concert by the Birds in Bournemouth, and they said to their publicist, Derek Taylor, they said, hey, record this. We're going to put it, you know, in the background of this song. Wow. But during an interview with music journalist Pete Fame, Roger McGuinn had said, some people have accused us of being bitter for writing the song, but it's no more bitter than Positively 4th Street. In fact, it isn't as bitter as that. We were thumbing through a teen magazine and looking at all the unfamiliar faces, and we couldn't help but think, wow, what's happening? All of a sudden, here is everyone and his brother and his sister-in-law and his mother and even his pet bullfrog singing rock and roll. So we wrote, So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star, to the audience of potential rock stars, those who were going to be or who wanted to be, or those who actually did go on to realize their goals. So the lyrics are actually quite, like we said, cynical. Um, you know, they start out and if anybody really listened to the lyrics, it's a catchy tune. I I love the song, Mm -hmm. but the lyrics themselves to me really stand out because they say, so you want to be a rock and roll star? Then listen now to what I say, just get an electric guitar, then take some time and learn how to play. Mm -hmm. And with your hair swung right and your pants too tight, it's going to be all right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, basically they talk about selling your soul. You know, yeah. to the record label um, and to what you're doing. And in res- response, you'll get these girls tearing you apart and the price you pay for your riches and fame. Was it all a game? You're a little insane. Mm. So, you know, they're taking a dig at themselves too. Yeah. I, mean, I they just were gonna say, I just
2: going to say, I'm just going to say, it really, it also sounds like a band that's a couple of years into the process um, and they've got enough experience now to look back on it. And mm-hmm. sort of like, "Wow, okay, so this is this is what it's like. this is where we got, this is what's happening." And I guess because that you know they were right at the forefront of that first wave of you know California bands. they were almost like elder statesmen at that point, at that point, they were. and they were you know, and they're and they're seeing what's the wave that's coming
1: after them. I mean, the Beatles came out, like we said, in 64, and then they came on the scene. And they were really dubbed as our answer to the Beatles, right? Folk rock was really, I mean, this burgeoning scene. Mm. Um, They had picked up a guitar and started playing this music before everybody else. But by 1967, like you said, they're seasoned veterans and they're also Mm -hmm. seeing what's happening to themselves. Yeah. You know, they're getting very big for their britches. At this point, Mm -hmm. they're about to kick out Crosby. Mm. He'd become. Less than tolerable,
0: yeah.
1: um, and they're seeing their band kind of coming apart at the scenes mm. So they're writing this about you know the throes of young kids that are coming out there and g- providing some sort of competition as well, but yeah. also to yeah. themselves. Yeah. You know yeah. w- what is this all about? Mm. Two years in, they have that perspective, which is which is quite interesting.
2: Yeah,
1: but the and song I'm- rings true even today.
2: Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I recently wrote just a. a fun little story about Roger McGuinn's trademark blue rectangle granny glasses that he wore. <laughs> I lot. saw yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, because my account always tends to just morph a little bit into like the fashion fashion um, occasionally. Like great. So I find it very interesting. Um, and he talks about sort of how he came up with that look. But um when I was reading um interview with him you know, he sort of pointed out the um, period of time that it took them to figure out how not to be, uh, you know, sort of America's answer to the Beatles. Originally the record company wanted them in suits and the, you know, and that whole look, um, which just, just, um, wouldn't have seemed authentic or real to people living in the you know LA canyons at that at that time um and so yeah he just talks about a little bit about um they pushing back on that manufactured sort of idea that the label might have had for them we need we need a Beatles and here they are and, and he was like mm-hmm. no actually where the birds and then you see you know David Crosby in that iconic green suede poncho <laughs> <laughs> that he seemed to wear every day. Like yes, yes. <laughs> and and McGuinn with his little, you know, blue glasses um, and, you know, and Chris Hillman who'd been desperately trying to control his curly hair into this <laughs> perfect little mop-top <laughs> look. Let his curls <laughs> come yes. out. Um, yes. And they, that you know, and they found, their own, yeah. they found their own way. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely.
1: But the Beatles had, you know, um, retired their suits as well. At that point, they were very Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> going down their own roads what a difference a couple of years makes right right (laughs) everything changes yeah you know but um it's a great song and I really didn't feel like we could talk about the canyons without the birds who really started it all they really did they were the real
2: pioneers of the canyon scene here's to them Okay, so we're just taking a little bit of a trip west from Laurel Canyon because I try and give all my other canyons their dues. We're going to head out to Topanga Canyon, which is, I think, for people outside of L.A., um, you know, some people may not have ever heard of Topanga Canyon, but it actually is, um, again, another really important canyon in the sort of history of L.A. music. Um, and I think a lot of people who lived in Laurel Canyon around the time when it really started getting to be very well known as the place to be in that sort of 67 68 um, a lot of people moved out to Topanga because it was a little bit more rural it's a little bit quieter but still within an easy drive of the city Um, and so some of the People who moved out there include Stephen Stills was out there, um, Chris Hillman from the Birds was um, left Laurel Canyon and moved to Topanga, and so did Neil Young. Yep. And he's probably the most associated with Topanga, which has a little bit more of a, and still to this day, a little bit more of a hippie kind of um, nature vibe yep. to it. And I I found a quote from, I think it was a a journalist um, at the time who said that in Laurel Canyon you'll find motorbikes and in Topanga you'll find Volkswagen buses. Yeah, that sounds
0: about about right.
2: (laughs) So so Neil Young was one of those who um, left Laurel Canyon and moved out to Topanga Canyon where he built, um, not built, bought a house. Um, He had just gotten married to um, his wife, Susan, who he had met in a restaurant in Topanga Canyon. Um, And they bought this redwood home that he converted the basement into a recording studio. Um, And the first music that he recorded in his own sort of makeshift at that point um, recording studio was the music for his 1970 album After the Gold Rush. Um, And so the song I am picking for Topanga and for Neil is the title track of that song, After the Gold Rush, because it has real Topanga roots, this song. Um, And it's a really interesting story. So among the people who were living out at Topanga at that time was the actor Dean Stockwell and also Dennis Hopper. And they had worked together on a movie and... Dean had talked about wanting to write this screenplay that he'd called After the Gold Rush that was set in Topanga Canyon and it was following like an ageing rock star who lived in a castle on, you know, on a hill in, in Topanga. And he carried a tree of life that sort of looked like almost like Jesus carrying the cross, that he carried this tree of life across the canyon. And it was set in a sort of artistic community. And there was going to be an earthquake and a tidal wave and I guess kind of post-apocalyptic kind of movie starring this ageing rock star. Anyway, somehow, Neil Young got a hold of This script Um, was probably floating around the cooler sections of Topanga Canyon at the (laughs) time, and he was really inspired by the script. And he talked to Dean Stockwell about, you know, if you make this movie, I want to do the soundtrack for it. Um, And so he apparently had been in a little bit of a writing slump at the time, but the script inspired him, and he just started writing songs with the idea that it would end up in this movie Um, and he in his memoir Neil Young says the song after the gold rush was written to go along with the story's main character as he carried the tree of life through Topanga to the ocean he said it's a little off the wall but I was really into it and you know and so this song after the gold rush just came you know and he and he gave it the title of of the film and he invited Stockwell to come into the studio with him and watch him work and you know and just be a part of the the whole experience which Stockwell says was one of the greatest privileges of his life to be a part of it but unfortunately Universal Pictures who'd optioned the script ended up cancelling it and it kind of went nowhere and it was never released but this album after the gold rush was released and was you know a, a a seminal album for, for Neil Young, um, who at the time said that the album was the spirit of Topanga Canyon. Mm. And
1: yeah, and I heard the, the screenplay is nowhere to be found.
2: No, I don't know what happened to it, but yeah, it um I don't even know if Dean Stockwell kept a copy, probably not, but um yeah, it's been lost to to you know time. But after the Gold Rush sort of stands in for this incredibly creative, obviously out there wild movie. Um, and, you know, it's con- considered one of Neil Young's best albums. And mm-hmm. um, I just, I love that when you can tie the music so specifically to the place where mm-hmm. it was conceived. You know, I think when Neil says it's the spirit of Topanga, if you've been to Topanga, you can kind of. Feel that when you when you hear um, the music on that album. The other little thing I love, a little story I love about Neil Young and Topanga was in his um, album the year before. Everybody knows this is nowhere. um, His label, Reprise Records, um, decided to have a little promotional giveaway that would go along with the um, album when it was released, and the giveaway was like dozens of these little bags of genuine Topanga dirt
0: that, oh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that you could get if you were like the first 100 people to buy the album. You would get this little bag of Topanga dirt, which I think is absolutely hilarious and shows, how, <laughs> shows sort of how connected Neil Young was the idea of Neil Young was with that canyon at the time. Yeah. And um, hilariously, when I wrote about this story, um, after the gold rush, just Googling Neil Topanga, um, came up a eBay listing for an original bag of Topanga dirt that came. Oh my God. To that album. I, I was like, Oh my God, this is incredible. So I shared. What was it being sold for? It, well, it was on for, I think the bid was $200 oh my and God. I um, I shared the, the link to the eBay thing on my Instagram stories and I said, can somebody please buy this and, <laughs> <laughs> and report
0: back to me? <laughs>
2: so one of you guys needs to buy this 50-year-old bag of Topanga dirt and sure enough one of my followers went and bought it.
0: Oh my god!
2: Um, and I just, I just that. I was like, "Oh my god!" Just a, a fun moment um, for me to to just discover this before unknown, hilarious, you know, marketing promotion at the exact moment that I'm writing this. I
1: know. I mean, that's right up there with pet rocks.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just great and I just, I hope that follower has got that little bag of Topanga dirt prominently displayed somewhere. <laughs> I I hope hope. so, because I'm
1: sure it's got mystical powers to it. I mean, come on. I hope they opened it and smelt it and just like... Yeah, it's only gotten more potent after the last 50 plus years. Of years
2: of Topanga energy in that little bag.
1: Oh my God, that's too funny. All right, let's play it.
4: I dreamed I saw the knights in armor coming, saying something about a queen. There were peasants singing, and drummers drumming, and the archers split the tree. There was a fanfare blowing to the sun that was floating on the breeze.
1: Emily, thank you so much for coming on. This was the last episode of season three. Now, season four is going to be starting and we're going to open it up to, you know, all the music of the 60s and 70s and 80s from here and anywhere else. But to me, this was an awesome way to end a season that has really done nothing but celebrate the great music that came out of California in the 60s and 70s. So we're ending it with Laurel Canyon. It couldn't get any better. Thank you for coming on and sharing your stories. And everybody needs to follow her uh, on Instagram at Lost Canyons LA. Thank you.
4: Sitting in a park in Paris, friends, reading the news and it sure looks bad. They won't give peace a chance That was just a dream some of us had Still a lot of lines to see But I wouldn't want to stay here It's too old and cold And settled in its ways here All oh, the California California i coming home I'm gonna see the folks I dig I'll even kiss a sunset pig California, I'm coming home
3: go well he gave me my smile it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football